from the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Fight for Good podcast. I'm your host, Major Jamie Satterley, and here with me is our editorial director, Jeff McDonald. How are you doing today, Jeff? Very well, thank you. Good to be with you for another edition of Fight for Good podcast. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, Today's podcast, we're going to be sharing Jeff's interview with the Chief Vision Officer of the Denison Forum, Jim Denison. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about Jim? Why his message is so important? Yeah, he was uh, very receptive to our interview. Uh, he has great respect for the Salvation Army. Uh, he's uh, he's an experienced pastor. Uh, uh, he's gotten his doctorate in religious studies. He's done mission work around the world. And he just felt called to serve as a cultural, what he calls um, a cultural apologist, taking on some of the uh, issues of the day. Uh, from a Christian perspective and trying to pinpoint what it means to live out uh, an authentic faith. You know, he tackles the tough issues. Um, He's trying to reach across borders. At the same time, you know, he's trying to bridge gaps between those who are, might be outside of the faith stance from a Judeo-Christian perspective and bridge that gap at the same time, encourage Christians to live authentically within this cultural era we find ourselves in, which uh, recent polls show is a, there's a bit of a diminishing of uh, interest in the Christian life and the Christian faith. The, the, the effect of relativism is certainly strong. Um, and people see that this idea is profuse with ideas and, and ideologies and ways of life. And uh, they see Christianity as one way among many. So he is trying to speak into that. And I think he does so effectively. And we really appreciate him taking time for us. Absolutely. It was such an interesting conversation. Um, we're seeing it more and more with Gen Z, but as the you know internet has opened up and as we're able to access more people, um, it, it's kind of become this thought where like there are multiple truths, right? Like you can have your truth. I can have my truth. They don't have to uh, agree with each other, which is confusing to me because I don't know how you call it truth if there's multiple ones of them, but, um, it's such a, it's such a big thing now. And so, um, what Jim, what Jim is doing is important and vital. Uh, and I'm excited to hear how this interview goes with him. So listeners, we would encourage you to take a few moments to listen to Jeff's interview uh, with Jim Dennison. Mr. Dennison, um, you are the chief vision officer of the Dennison forum, a nonprofit Christian media organization, your email daily email articles go out to uh, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Um, and you describe yourself as a cultural apologist. Could you explain what that is and what you see as your mission? Absolutely. Happy to do that, Jeff. And thanks again for the privilege of the conversation. So we believe there's a need for a great movement of Christians who will use their influence to shape the culture relative to the kingdom of God, to advance God's word in the context of the issues of the day. So what I seek to do, an organization seeks to do, is to equip Christians to do that. We do that by helping people to think biblically and respond redemptively to breaking news and to cultural issues. 
I write a daily article, as you mentioned, that goes to about 300,000 subscribers and about 2 million in its total social reach. Then we do podcasts, we do books, we do video, we do a great deal of other media across the day as well, all in the service of equipping Christians to use their influence more effectively for Jesus. How have you arrived at your current status and your work? This is an interesting story. I'll try to do very briefly, but really it kind of goes into my background just a bit. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in a wonderful home, but no spiritual life. My father had fought in the Second World War and never went to church again, saw such horrible atrocities. He could not make his faith work with the experiences that he had had in the South Pacific. And so I was in this wonderful home, but no spiritual life, no church life of any kind. At the age of 15, I was invited by some friends to ride their bus to church. That's how I first heard the gospel and eventually came to faith in Christ, but still had all my dad's questions. If there's a God, why is there war, science and faith, evil and suffering, all these issues. Eventually, when I was in college, someone gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and it changed my life as it has for so many other people. First time I'd seen anyone deal with faith intellectually. So I ended up making that really my life's pursuit and calling. I did a PhD in philosophy of religion and taught philosophy at Southwestern Seminary for several years. And then I've pastored four churches with about 20,000 in their membership total and have taught at seminaries along the way as well. Then in 2009, we launched Denison Forum so that I could devote full-time attention to helping people think biblically and redemptively about cultural issues. Isn't it amazing how God penetrates each generation somehow. I can relate you know, well to your story about your family and all the questions that uh, surround us and finding uh, you know, answers for that and, and being on a search for that. So thank you for that. Um, we live in an age of information explosion with knowledge increasing geometrically uh, within a matter of years. How do you explain the relevance of the Bible to generations immersed in advanced knowledge broad worldviews, and faith in science and human progress and enlightenment? It's a terrific question. In one of my first philosophy classes, I came across a statement in a textbook, which I guess my kids would say rocked my world. And uh, from then till now, it's been really powerful for me. And it was the idea that human nature doesn't change. So the Bible remains perennially relevant. Our job as communicators of scriptural truth is simply to demonstrate the relevance of scripture to the issues it already addresses, because neither human nature changes nor divine nature changes. Now, it's our job on occasion to enculturate that, sometimes to remove the barriers that help people see the relevance of scripture more fully. Well, we don't have to make the Bible relevant because its truth is perennially relevant. Truth doesn't change, human nature doesn't change, divine nature doesn't change. So what God said to issues, whether they're from fear to anger to animosity to injustice, whatever the issues of the day might be, God's truth is still true and still relevant to those issues today. So, well, given that, what what expressions of authentic Christianity do you see in our world today? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And as a question that moves us outside, even just our context itself, uh, the first expression that I would suggest, whether it's here or overseas, is Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. It's speaking truth. It's declaring biblical truth courageously, but also compassionately. It's First Peter 3, where we're told to make a defense for the hope we have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Wherever we're seeing that, we're seeing the spirit of Jesus as well as the word of Jesus being communicated and defended and, and made persuasive in the larger culture. People being salt 
and light where they're supposed to be salt and light as God leads them. It's Matthew 18, 15, where we're to go to people with whom we disagree. I'm not allowed to say about you what I don't say to you. Slander is limits. Gossip and libel are off limits. And instead, we're speaking the truth in love. To me, that's an authentic uh, description and uh, incarnation of the spirit of Jesus in the life of the church today. And I'm seeing that around the world in some ways that are incredibly encouraging for me today. We may not see them so much in our culture, but I'm seeing them in other places. For example, I've gotten to go to Cuba more than 10 times over the years. And I can tell you when you're in Cuba, you're walking around in the book of Acts. You are watching believers paying a huge price to make public their faith in Jesus. The moment of their public baptism, for instance, their children get the worst school assignments, the worst military assignments, they get the worst jobs, the worst houses, and sometimes far worse than that. And yet the courage of their faith, their compassion toward the officials, the local officials, even the national officials, their desire to be salt and light and see a transforming difference in their culture is why, according to Christianity Today, there have been more than a million new Christians in Cuba in the last 10 years. Quick example of that. One of the churches we work with in Cuba in our ministry some years ago was able to rebuild its sanctuary, its temple, as it would be called. Our ministry and others helped them financially to be able to do this. And finally, they got government permission to do it. As they were taking down the old building, they saved every nail. They saved every piece of wood. And then they created a council in their village not just of church members, but of the entire village of Cespedes to determine who most needed that wood and those nails so as to be able to share the materials from the old temple with the entire village. It's that kind of compassion, that kind of speaking the truth in love, that kind of washing feet that is showing people the reality of Jesus in us and is incredibly compelling. Wow, that's interesting. The army, Salvation Army, has a history in Cuba. Before, of course, the revolution, they were very, uh, very much a presence and continue so today, uh, with trips to uh, Cuba to provide resources, etc. So, uh, you know, we just hope that that country is inundated with the gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see that transformation there? Yeah, and, and you know, it's very humbling to think about how people are, are around the world are willing to, you know, sacrifice so greatly for their faith. We see that through our Salvation Army as well. It's very impressive. I, uh, I recall a question that came up in a college class on philosophy way back in the day when I was there that asked, is it possible to develop a morality and virtuous living without a belief in God? I think of the early Stoic philosophers, for instance, who I read, who earnestly and painstakingly tried to stake out the good and the true and the virtuous and live by it. What are your thoughts on that? It's a terrific question. I actually read from the Stoics every morning. They're kind of my, yeah, kind of interestingly, they're my specialty within ancient philosophy, which wow. was one of my specialties when I taught philosophy. Some of it is brilliant. And so, well, and so I, kind of an interesting coincidence to have this conversation. And you're yeah. exactly right. If you read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, for instance, yeah. Wouldn't it be different across the culture if everybody lived by that, if everybody uh, <laughs> absorbed that wisdom and lived according to that truth, or Epictetus, Seneca, so many that you could lift up as examples of people who were living out a morality that certainly wasn't based in a Judeo-Christian context. I think I would, I would respond, however, on two levels. First of all, they certainly were living within a context of religion as they understood it. 
They make quite often references to God or to the gods. They had a sense of there being uh, a transcendent dimension in life to which they were responsible and which was on some level, uh, a level of accountability in their lives. And that moves to what Justin the Martyr called the seminal logos, or the seed of truth in every human being. I believe out of John 1, when it says that in the beginning, um, uh, Jesus uh, was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it, that there is this light of truth, what Peter Berger called signals of transcendence in every human. And so whether that morality comes out of a Buddhist worldview or Hindu worldview or a Muslim worldview uh, or Jewish worldview, a Stoic worldview, could be Epicurean, could be Platonic, could be Aristotelian. But there are seeds of truth inside all of that that may not be acknowledged as coming from divine revelation or Judeo-Christian worldview, but they have commonalities that I believe are revealed from the God who loves us all, who knows us all, and who's speaking to all of us. If he could use Cyrus in the Old Testament to liberate the Jewish people, a man who obviously was not Jewish, he can use anybody to accomplish his larger purpose. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, I th- you know, when I think about, you know, who can be saved and what salvation is, and, you know, I, I leave those questions up to God. He's really the final judge. So, you know, s- seeing that people have that seed in them. Well, Paul says that, doesn't he? That we all have a knowledge of, of God. We have a conscience. We are all aware of our dependence on the eternal. Uh, and we, we are responsible for it and to it. So uh, that's an interesting topic. Of course, the army, you know, tries to uphold the dignity of all people and to serve human need in Christ's name, seeing Christ in those people. So, I can. I guess we can only hope that um, we see more and more of that in our world. Absolutely true, and that kind of dignity of all humans is is rooted in the biblical worldview. It's Genesis one, where we're all created in the image of God. It's Galatians three, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all Abraham's seed and heirs according to the covenant. Of course, as you and I know, we as believers owe it to the world to know how they can absolutely have a personal relationship with God in Christ. That's why the same Paul who wrote Romans one and talked about the seed all people have would was willing to give his life that they might. Know that seed ultimately manifested in Jesus and sharing the good news of his love and the gospel. But we do that not only with what we say, but with how we say it and with how we live it. And that's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of the army, because what you do every single day is demonstrate the relevance of Christian compassion in your compassion. And that builds bridges for the gospel every day. Indeed. Henny, uh, those frontline workers at the Our Salvation Army are doing marvelous work, especially during COVID, you know, reaching out to those who are vulnerable and especially needy. But why why do you think Christianity and Jesus and all that talk is seen as a pejorative by many today? Mm-hmm. And it is. You're exactly right. And again, I don't know that it's so much the logic of the gospel as it is the way in which that logic gets communicated. All world religions believe that they have a unique truth to offer. This idea they're just different roads up the same mountain is not shared by any of them. Uh, Buddhists are convinced that the formal noble truth and the April noble path is the way to nirvana or enlightenment as they would understand it. Hinduism is convinced 
that it's ascetic disciplines and the way to moksha or salvation. Just as Orthodox Jews are convinced the 613 laws of the Torah are God's written revelation intended for all of us. And Muslims believe that the five pillars of Islam are the way to relate appropriately to Allah. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he's not making a claim that other religions don't make for themselves as well. The difference is, if I could shorten an entire world religions class into 30 seconds, the difference is that in Jesus, this one way is available to everyone who will choose it. It's like there's only one key, but it opens every lock. If I wish to come to nirvana through Buddhism, just to expect that, that's a lifetime of ascetic ritual and discipline and practice and perhaps reincarnation, depending on which version of Buddhism and Hinduism with its reincarnation. And it's a lifestyle of ascetic discipline in Islam or in, or in Judaism. But anybody who will today ask Jesus to forgive their sins and be their Lord becomes the child of God in that moment. So it's one key, but the one key opens every lock. And that's what makes Christianity different. Religions are us climbing up to God. Christianity is God climbing down to us. But to make the rest of my point very quickly, Jeff, the way in which we share that has to be in a spirit of humility and grace that says we are beggars helping beggars find bread. I am no better, certainly, than anyone that has not heard that message or has not accepted that message. I've just been given a grace gift that now I have the privilege of sharing with others. If I don't do it in that spirit, it certainly comes across as elitism and pejorative and discriminatory and all the rest, which is the opposite of the spirit of Christ. So, Jim, I, I just have two more questions for you, and we really appreciate your time. Uh, and this might be a bit redundant, but um, given the perplexities of modern life, and it's certainly complicated, how should those who identify themselves as Christians then live? At the end of the day, that really is the question, isn't it? Kind of the Francis Schaeffer question, how then shall we live? If we're not living our faith, it'd be hard to say we have faith. It really what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And follow doesn't mean just walk behind me along some terrain. It means imitate me. It means be what I am. It's the body of Christ manifesting the spirit of Christ. So I'll tell you, Jeff, the biggest obstacle I see to this in my own experience and in my pastoral experience over these decades is self-sufficiency. I would tell you that self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. Our belief that we can follow Jesus in human effort, in human achievement by trying harder to do better, it's kind of an American ethos, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get up earlier, stay up later, try hunger, harder, work longer, all of that. It doesn't work spiritually. I can't convict anybody of their sin. I can't save a soul. I can't change a life. Can't do anything eternal. The Holy Spirit must do that through me. So I have to start every day by getting off the throne enthroning Jesus. It's Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to take control of my mind and my life and author my thoughts and speak through me and use me to his glory, and then walk through the day in the power of the Spirit to say what he asks me to say and go where he leads me to go in a partnership with him. If I'll do that on my good days, and those are my good days. I wish I'd love to tell you every day was that good day, but on my good days, if I'm empowered by the Spirit, he is living the life of Christ through me. It's not me just trying harder to do better. It's Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's being the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit, and manifesting Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That really resonates with uh, Salvation Army Outlook, you know, with, with its Wesleyan roots, uh, its emphasis on, on personal holiness and the privilege of all, the sainthood of all believers. 
you know, the, the word holiness is in itself kind of not in normal use these days. And yet it's such an important aspect that we are all as individuals. We have a conscience, we have a heart, we have a responsibility to our creator. We look to advance that message, certainly. So thank you for that. My last question for you, Jim, is just uh, how have you grown in your understanding of who God is and how do you see Jesus at work in our world today? Mm, yeah, well, thank you for that. Became a Christian at the age of 15, uh, came to Christ through an extremely evangelistic church, a bus ministry, very much a commitment to personal witnessing. And for that, I will always be grateful. I, I owe literally an eternal debt to that pastor, to his wife who led me to Christ, to that church, and to their investment in me and in lost people. What I didn't get in that experience, and I don't blame them, I'm sure this was me, not them, but what I didn't really know was what to do with my faith in the context of a growing sanctification. As you spoke of earlier in the Wesleyan context, I really didn't learn what that meant, except just to go to church and try to be good. <laughs> no one said that. I'm not accusing the church of that at all. I just didn't pick up myself. What is it to continue to, there's a sense in which you've been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Well, what is this being saved part? What does that look like? What does sanctification look like in practical terms? What does this mean for us in our own spiritual experience? So in 1997, I was pastoring a church in Atlanta. We went on a two-day silent retreat at a, a Jesuit uh, retreat center in the northern part of Atlanta on the Chattahoochee River. It was there I came in contact with the writings of Henri Nouwen, and it was there that for the first time since my salvation, I came to realize that before Jesus wants me to work for him, he wants me to walk with him. That what he's after is a personal, intuitive, intimate, daily, consecrated relationship with him. And my life isn't nearly so much what others think or even what I think, not so much what I do, but what Jesus does through me and what he wants of me is a personal relationship with him. On my good days, I remember that. On my bad days, I fall back into what can I do, not to earn my salvation, but to almost earn the right to be saved. What can I do to justify myself? What can I do to be more popular with others? What can I do to perform more effectively? What can I do to possess more of the world? I fall back into that, and God becomes a means to my end. On my good days, I go back to that Jesuit retreat center, Ignatius House, and I remember Jesus loves me. He loves me because he loves me. He doesn't love me because of anything I have done or can do. He loves me because God is love. And what he most wants is a personal relationship with me. On my good days, I remember that. Is there anything else you wanted to add for us? or I would just add another word of support for what the Army is doing and the way in which you're doing it, the way you're incarnating the Spirit of Christ. Some years ago, I heard a preacher working out of John 13 and Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And he said, when we stand before Jesus one day, he will not ask to examine our title. He will ask to look at our towel. I believe the towel, the dirty towel <laughs> with which the army is serving Jesus by washing the feet out of love for our Lord is what he is wanting all of us in our own way to emulate. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And a big thank you to Jim for agreeing to be interviewed for the Fight for Good podcast. Uh, to read Jeff's full interview with Jim, we would encourage you to check out thewarcry.org or to pick up uh, a, a hard copy of the War Cry 
at your local Salvation Army, or even better yet, to subscribe. You can get all that information on thewarcry.org. And that's going to end this episode of the Fight for Good podcast. So be sure to subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us, uh, both The War Cry and Peer Magazine, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. See ya. Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts.